We are. We're just going to dive right in and uh, do this like we're here in person. In person. In person. So I am so like blown away that we have gotten to this point. Oh my gosh. It's to, unbelievable. To the point where we're sitting in the same room, which is weird. So everybody, this is Britt Eaton. Hey. And she is my, she's basically become my business partner. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, sort of, we already kind of know that for the next few years we're going to be together because we have a book coming out and then another one in the works. Yes, yes. It's pretty insane. So, yeah, we're, we just finished the manuscript for The Uncovery a couple months ago. It just got picked up by uh, Whitaker House Publishing. We're super excited. It's going to be launching yeah. in the spring of 2022. So, big, what? big news. I know, right? And then we've got a devotional to follow shortly after. So, we are stoked. It is unbelievable. It is such a privilege to be a co-author with you, George, and be partnering with you and all of this and oh. I can't believe this is like the third time I've seen you in my whole life and here know, we are right? <laughs> I'm into your book it yes is, um, <laughs> real, okay so just a little bit of a backstory we did the whole Britt lives in Ohio um and obviously I live here in Tampa Florida and so I just picked Britt up at the airport and what was weird was you know she's like yeah I'm the one with red hair in the green flannel <laughs> and I'm like well I know she has red hair but <laughs> It was just still weird. I'm like, okay, I've never, like, I've only seen her in person a couple other times. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, especially when you've spent so much time together via Zoom. Yep. That definitely is like, this is this is weird. Okay. It's weird, but it's a good weird. It's yeah. a good weird. Definitely, like, um, COVID has done some good things. I think it, I think so too. I, if you had told me that you could write an entire book without ever really being physically mm -hmm. present in the same room together, I don't know that I would have believed you. I right. don't know that I would have believed that that was possible, but we learned some really creative ways to yeah. learn and to co-create together, didn't we? It was yeah. really exciting. It so really was. Pandemic, definitely not a good thing, but sometimes the resilience and the strategies that come out of difficult yeah. times can be great things that make you more efficient and more productive going forward. Yeah. And I, you know, honestly, it was the pandemic that made me I think, you know, in that early stage and I when I reached out to you and I was like, you know, I think that the Lord has put this book on me, but on my heart to write. And it's really now with the pandemic and everything that's happening, being able to sort of uh, see the future of mental health and addiction um, and suicide, you know, staring at us. Uh, I knew that this was the right time. So the pandemic really did bring that motivate me anyways to finally say, let's I, I need to do this. Yeah. And honestly, you know, you living in Ohio, I, I would have in the past been thinking, okay, I guess I have to fly up there so we can write. And, you know, how often could we do th all that type of stuff? Right. And so the whole like, yeah, we could just do this via Zoom. And, you know, whatever. It worked. It sure did work. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. But it was during that time when you were coming and, you know, just sharing your heart with me about the book that you had in mind. I think we had no idea what we were really getting into. We were still in the yeah. early stages of the pandemic. I think we, we had an idea that certainly this was going to be bad for people, being yeah. isolated like this, being cut off. But I don't think either one of us had a full idea of what 
what was going to happen related to addiction and related to mental health struggles and what we're seeing right now with like suicide numbers rising. I think the timing for this message that you've had for so long on your heart, the timing for it to finally come out is now. It's in this post-pandemic world we're living in. This is the time where people need a message of real hope Mm -hmm. that looks something different than maybe the traditional programming that, that they had before because that programming, we didn't have a pandemic. We didn't have something where most of the known world is struggling with their mental health in yeah. some sort of way and that we're all addicted to something. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is definitely a time where we need to be looking at recovery differently. We need to find ways to destigmatize and ways to try to come together and co-labor. And I think it's going to be up to us, the church, like we're the ones who are going to have to step in and fix it. So yeah. it's an exciting time. Yeah. And that's, that's a scary thought when we, if the church, you know, we need to step in and fix it. And the church is still also sort of, um, trying to heal from the pandemic because the church has uh, went through a major overhaul during this last year and a half. Um, you know, honestly, you could probably look back even longer with the election and all that, but the church itself almost needs to do its healing process so that it can be the best, safest place for people that are struggling to really find that healing. Yeah, but amen. you know what's interesting I want to really share with everybody is how when the Holy Spirit moves and put something on our heart, I think there'll be confirmation, right? There'll be confirmation that it was really from God, that it was really um, him speaking and not just you. And so I know for me, I had had the idea of this book for years on me and, and there are a couple failed attempts. I, I think I still have some uh, files on my, on my laptop that is like book, possible book chapters or whatever. So <laughs> from like five years ago, but when it came to be the right time, I did not know anything about you other than, well, you love the Holy Spirit and follower of Jesus, and you would work with Bill Vanderbush, who's a friend of mine, and I knew that, and that was it. And so when I got on the first call with you, and I was like, all right, I'm going to lay out some stuff. I have no idea who this other person is, okay? <laughs> and, and this is how I knew that you were the right person, and this was really a God thing, is... I lay out everything on my thoughts on how recovery has to change and how, you know, the way that we view addiction and mental health and suicide needs to change. And I'm saying all these things that some people could say are controversial. And then I'm like, so that's my story. So what do you think? And your response was, you were like, I don't know if you know this, but I was a celebrate recovery leader for two years. <laughs> and this is the, w- the reason I left is because I think the way you think. And I was like, that's <laughs> such a God thing Yeah. where I knew in that moment, I had no idea. And so I know people that may read the book and know a little bit of your story and, oh, they came together because of that. And it's like, no, I had no idea. And so that was just an added, like the Lord saying, yes, this is who you're supposed to work with on this project. And this is the reason why, yeah. because you guys do have the same vision you do have the same message you just need each other to get it out to the world yeah absolutely well it was really humbling to sit and hear you share your testimony that first time when we were on that that uh few dot live program with brad mccoy that awesome thing we did during the pandemic where we first met and i learned all about the timothy initiative and the sober truth project it was just in its infancy at that point and I remember hearing your story thinking there, there was just something about me that was drawn to you and to Julie. And I'm like, that 
is so much of what I need in central Ohio. I need people who are thinking like that. Where I live in Knox County, Ohio, we actually have the highest per capita heroin problem in the state. Even though we're a little teeny burg that's pretty white bread, you wouldn't think we would deal with many issues like that. The devastation we have seen in our community because of the heroin epidemic because of people who are just stuck in bondage. You know, there are, I think, three different Celebrate Recovery programs, plenty of AA programs, plenty of detoxes, even locally available in central Ohio. But nobody's really thinking about recovery differently. Now, this certainly is not saying I love Celebrate Recovery. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love anybody who's going to step up and work hard to love and try to lead people through their recovery journey. But We've been doing it the same for about 100 years, folks, for about 100 years. And so it's really time, especially now that culture is changing and shifting so much, the way that we interact with people, our our relationships are different, our communities are different. What can we do from a recovery standpoint to step up and do something that might look radically different, but it may just be the answer? And so Mm -hmm. when I hear you talking about all this new stuff, I'm like, we have to get this out there, but it's not another program. It's right. not another 12-step thing. Like, we're not going to be the the next John Baker coming up with another Celebrate Recovery. Love John, loved John Baker. But in, in any case, the world is ready, and I believe the church is ready for a gentle, <laughs> loving, and maybe not so subtle nudge in the right direction. We need to get back to the heart of what recovery is really supposed to be. We need to go deeper, looking into, into the trauma that puts us into a place of needing recovery in the first place and then we need to take a much more grace-laced approach to to working with people and not only working with people loving and leading them but walking in our own recovery journeys because goodness knows as a CR leader I had my own recovery journey like I have dealt with addiction I have done dealt with mental health issues and you you know I'm a suicide survivor so these are just things that few of us, the stigma, the stigmas that exist right now in our communities, especially Mm -hmm. faith communities around some of these issues, people are suffering in silence. Even people like us, Mm -hmm. it takes a lot to step out and say authentically, this is my real story. This is my real hope. This is where my real healing came from. And then being willing to be in authentic relationship with people as they begin to walk out a completely different journey that may sure be based on some loose 12 steps, but go goes way, way, way deeper that for than that for as long as it takes. Yeah. That's what we need in Ohio. And that's what made me so excited to partner with you on this book. So yeah, lots of good stuff coming. Lots of good stuff. <laughs> lots of good stuff. It's, um, you know, I think it, it, what's funny is as we, we worked through um, the book, I actually personally went through my own, it was very therapeutic for me to, uh, finally see, you know, my thoughts put coherent because I have a hard time doing that myself. <laughs> so having you come along and, and, and really help me to, you know, put my, my thoughts into make sense. But not only that, I, I think as we worked through the book, I was not the same person at the end of the book um, that I was in the beginning. So the message even at the end of the book was different than at the very beginning. And I remember one, at one point it was right during the election and all the chaos of the world. And I remember being like, this is why I didn't want to write the book during a political season <laughs> because it emotionally stirs something in me that I didn't want to be in the book per se. That's yeah. not what the book's about, but it was just, it was very, very personal and just very hard. But you and I just being friends and processing through so much of that, you know, new trauma that we, you know, both were going through and, 
um, really at the end of, end of the book, I was different. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm really hoping, obviously, that the people that actually read the book will be different, you know, as well. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, I think um, I, I talked to a friend of mine last last night who just finished reading the book, which he read it in two days. And I was very <laughs> impressed with that. So it's like, <laughs> what? Either you skimmed and didn't really read <laughs> or you couldn't put it down. I'm going to hope it's the latter. But um he actually brought up something that I hadn't thought about since we wrote it, but he's like the way that you turned you, you put recovery together with salvation. He goes, man, that was so good. I'd never thought about that. And I forgot all about that because it's in the very beginning of the book, but um, salvation and recovery are the same journey. And I believe, to some degree, the way that big churches have been doing salvation has stopped working. And that's what we've seen in the pandemic as people have fallen away in large numbers from churches because they didn't feel connected. They didn't really feel like they seen Jesus and their leaders. And they felt like everything was either a fraud or people were hypocrites. And, you know, the same problem that we have in big recovery where it's non-personal, it's a one-size-fits-all and so I think that the two are are so important to understand where a person may want to not want to put the book up because they don't deal with mental health issues or addiction issues. But if you're a Christian, you really are in recovery from the moment that you become a Christian because you're trying to recover, you know, your original true identity that Jesus died on the cross to give you. Mm -hmm. And so you are in recovery. You're trying to recover that identity. But when you've been sold a bill of goods that you did the altar call and, and you have that identity, it's it's true and not true. It's true in, in truth, but not true in experience. And so when we don't have that experiential transformation that happens from that recovery journey of recovering your true identity that that Jesus, you know, literally died for us, um, you know, that the same Jesus that gave us that identity before the foundations of the world, Mm -hmm. that's recovery. So part of recovery being for everyone is like people humbling themselves to recognize I am in recovery from something. And when we can begin to see it through a different lens, then we can have the necessary compassion and empathy for the person that's struggling with the heroin. And and that's where, you know, the, the disconnect, you know, with, you know, especially addiction, but even mental health, uh, just to give an example, I, you know, I, I, I mentally keep, you know, tabs on how many movies and tv series that the central theme of the series is somehow about mental health or suicide and in a negative way mm-hmm. yeah. but it's like writers in hollywood can't write a story without it it's like you know there has to be a suicide in every single movie or or tv show you see nowadays mm-hmm. pay attention folks you will notice now that i'm saying this mm-hmm. or it's a person struggling with a mental health issue and they use that to base their storyline of the show and so that what does that do that desensitizes um our belief system and it, and it paints a different picture of what mental health issues really look like what suicide really looks like and so we become skewed yeah. and that only happens when a person is disconnected from the issue and so the idea of recovery for everyone it's so we can all be connected 
to addiction, to mental health, to suicide, so that we can begin to say, no, I'm not, this is not acceptable. Okay, we're go- uh, that's not how it should be portrayed. I'm not going to spend $14 for a movie ticket to see a movie about a suicide that's not even realistic. Right. Um, and paints a, a picture that could actually hurt people that are struggling. It's not until we, we understand things, you know, that we may pass off as not being important to us because it's not connected to us. And, and the truth is, when the recovery for everyone, when we begin to, to process that and see that in a different light, we can begin to make the necessary changes that society really needs. Yeah, I think uh, one of the interesting pieces that goes along with all of that is that, you know, one of the biggest topics in the book that we talk about is just finding ways to destigmatize mm-hmm. things like addiction, mental health, and suicide. When we say destigmatize, we don't mean please glorify this in the media. Because there's a fine line between having the courage to talk about something and then somehow putting it on a pedestal as some sort of taboo or unknown that people should then explore. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have wisdom, when you begin to showcase things like that creatively, there was a there was a TV show on Netflix a couple years ago called um, 13 Reasons Why. It was about the 13 reasons why a young girl, high school girl committed suicide. Each episode walked you through some piece of trauma in her story. And there was no redemption at the end. It was basically, it was bullying. It was sexual assault. It was all of these things, all things we should definitely be talking about and be working towards solutions against. But the, the criticisms that came against the show were that kids are watching this and they're seeing this beautiful girl who makes these conscious and calculated decisions mm-hmm. about taking her own life. And more often than not, that is not the case with suicide. It's oftentimes right. a fleeting thought that goes too far in the moment. Mm-hmm. So to be able, I believe the safe place to be able to have some of these conversations should be within the walls of the church. And I don't mean the walls of a church building. Right, I mean, right. within your church family, your community, your safe space of people where Yes, people are struggling with these things, with addiction, with their mental health. They're struggling with thoughts of suicide, and they, the stigmas against them are so bad, they don't feel like they have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. So they'll look to Hollywood to yeah. tell them how you should feel about these kinds of things. And while Hollywood might be trying to dangle a carrot and say, you shouldn't have to feel shame if you're dealing with these things, when there's no redemptive piece at the end of the story that comes really through the shed blood right. of Jesus, you and I know that, right. when there's no redemption at the end of the story, it's just tragedy. So I think there's an opportunity right now. These are conversations that I believe the church, if we can play nice, it's time to show up in culture and have some of these conversations because there really is hope. There really is freedom that you can find from some of these things. But just like, you know, praying the sinner's prayer at the altar one Sunday morning for that moment of initial salvation, that's a good day (laughs) for people. That's a really good day. But it's the first step. I had like 20 of them. Yeah, I know, right? But, But when that, when, and that salvation finally sticks, if that's a theology you want to cling, cling to, when it finally sticks, it's the first step on what's likely going to be a lifelong journey of beginning to understand the heart and the character of the Father. And just like that first moment or day of sobriety, that moment of initial deliverance from bondage, you're not just going to 
flip a switch and be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect and live happily ever after. There's right. going to be a whole lot of unlearning and relearning that has to happen after that. And we, especially the church, need to start getting comfortable with walking with people who are not yet in a Ned Flanders style <laughs> approach to life. Yeah. We got to figure this out, folks. You know, we need more Ted Lassos in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my so, okay. So yeah, now I, I obviously, you know, Took a turn and got real serious real quick. I want to explain something. We use the term destigmatize, where you may be sitting there going, Well, don't they mean re stigma reduction? Aren't they the same thing? And the answer is no, they're not. So um, I'm trying to personally get destigmatize into the urban dictionary because it's actually, people don't use it. <laughs> Even my, my friend Amanda, who's a doctor for Harvard, she's like, You use destigmatize, and I like how you use it. It's not actually a word, though. So, um, anyways, but it, it, so reducing stigma is just, it's simply that it's like, can we use different language around things so that people don't think of it in that term? Mm -hmm. When I say destigmatize, I mean that it shouldn't even be stigmatized in the first place mm -hmm. that if we all, listen, if we all actually somehow have the revelation that addiction is, you know, maybe it may be opium or heroin or or alcohol, but it might be shopping, it may be your cell phone, it may be porn, it may be your work, it may could be your workaholic, it could be all kinds of things. Some are socially acceptable, and because the masses do them, it, it makes it it's okay. And even if you're not doing it, then you're not a good person. So if you're like not a workaholic it, to support your family, then you're not a good parent, you know, things like that. But if we all have this revelation that that's every bit as much of an addiction as a person who who has the heroin problem. Yeah. If we all had that, then we wouldn't need to to reduce stigma around it. It wouldn't be stigmatized at all because we would all understand we all have it. Mm -hmm. So there goes the stigma. It, it's gone when you recognize, well, you're not going to stigmatize something that everybody has. Right. So now let's look at how do we get freedom from that? Yeah. And yeah. we can stop wasting time about how to use nicer language around mm -hmm. things. I, I do think that's right. Don't get me wrong. But uh, millions and millions of dollars are being spent to try to understand how to use different language around things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and speaking of language, I mean, one of the big things that we deal with in the book is just the problem that comes with the labels that we like to attach to people who are struggling with things, <laughs> the permanent yeah. labels we like to attach. And someone can be free of alcohol for 20 years, but they might still introduce themselves in a meeting as an alcoholic, Right. which I mean, it perpetuates an idea and a truth and then a piece of an identity that if you really do believe that, you'll continue to go on in sin in faith if you're not careful. Yeah. So this is really an opportunity for us to find ways to let go of any lie that we might have been believing about ourselves, let go of any label that we might be believing about ourselves, even if we're still actively struggling with it. If you could not label that as the core of your identity, if the mm -hmm. core of your identity can be beloved child of God, if that can be your who you know you really are, what you struggle with is something that is in fact temporary and it's right. something that can be dealt with and yeah. it can be laid at the feet of Jesus at the cross and you can get past it. But when you believe that that's a core part of your identity, you never will shake it. And you might be 20 years sober, but you probably can't eat. I don't know if you can even drive by the bar. <laughs> it might right. not be something that's that's reality. It's not 
true life transformation if we're talking about nothing but perpetuating that initial state of sobriety. Right. And, and I think, you know, when we look at um, mental health issues where um, if somebody, you know, has um, a, some type of a disorder that they need to be on medication, you know, we can't paint the picture that freedom is only the day they don't have to no longer take that medication. Yes. So what if freedom for that person is have, is taking that medication, <laughs> yes. but they're thinking in a sound mind and, and able to function in a way that leads them to the life that they choose and desire. Yeah. So it, it's like the way that we look at things, the way that we talk about things, it, it matters because the person who's actually in the thing um, is looking outside of themselves sometimes for answers. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about something. This is totally new, totally off topic. But today I was thinking about this new thing I want to like start talking about, which is, um, you know, really thinking about the question of who am I? Like, who am I? You know, and, and not just a, I'm a beloved child of God. Yes, but that becomes a trite saying. So, um, Julie's husband, um, a short old man, um, what am I, you know, it's like <laughs> these thinking of all these things, but no, but like, who am I? What do I even, I like realizing, like, what do I like about life? What do I like to do? What are, you know, my personal passions? What do I love to do? And, and recognizing like these things matter when we think about freedom mm -hmm. And we think about, you know, recovery, because if you don't even know who you are and you don't even know what you like and what you love, it's like building a platform so that you have a reason to stay alive, mm. building a platform of having a reason to stay off of drugs or alcohol, mm -hmm. having a platform of, you know, taking your medication and understanding that's okay so that you can have a life, right? Yeah. But it's like, if we don't actually think about, you know, what do I actually enjoy? Like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Mm -hmm. Who do I want, you know, what do I want the world to say about me when I'm gone? All this came about yesterday because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's got 10 years sober and he's going through a little bit of a time of being unhappy mm -hmm. and he's super successful in the business world and makes a ton of money and and, you know, coming to me who doesn't make a lot of money and lives in the inner city. And he's like, man, I just, I don't know. I'm just not happy. And I'm like, dude, you, you're spending 70 hours a week doing something. You've got to figure out what you love about life. Mm -hmm. And it just really hit me that a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, They know enough to know what they need to do in order to continue on mm -hmm. and do you know it's almost like it's a machine that they live in and this is what i need to do to you know pay the bills and you know save some money and do whatever but do you stop to think like is this really what i want to do mm -hmm. and you know it seems like a lot of funerals i've been to lately and thinking about you know what a lot of the people that are closest to the person who's passed on saying about that person right and and i think that these are like the types of things that when we, we talk about somebody who's trying to get into recovery from any of the above, addiction, mental health, suicide. So when I say recovery, mm -hmm. I, I mean that universally. Um, think about the whole life. Yeah. And, and about thinking, it's about thinking about the person beyond 
do your 12-step meeting, beyond take your Zoloft, beyond, hey, if you're having suicidal thoughts, get, call me. You got to go beyond that, right? Yeah. You got to like, forget all that for a second. That's an aspect of your life, but it's not all of you. Yeah. So who is all of you? And, and I just think that that is so important when it comes to fulfillment, because without fulfillment, we'll seek, we'll seek things out to fulfill us. Yeah. And even as Christians, right? So, you know, it's like the awesome preacher who is only fulfilled when he gets up in front of people. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to fall into this trap of fulfillment coming from something other than you. It's, uh, it's almost like, um, can you be at peace with who you are regardless of what you, what you do? So it's like if you're doing something and it becomes a huge success, not letting that change you. If you do something and it, and it becomes a big failure, not letting it change you. Mm -hmm. Whether you succeed or whether you fail, being at peace with who you are. Yeah. And that, to me, like when I look at my own life and my own recovery, is the type of thing where I can look at and say, when I'm 70, I want to be able to do that. I mean, I'd like to be able to do it a little bit before then, but <laughs> my point being, <laughs> I want to be able to say like, man, I don't need to succeed or fail. Mm -hmm. I am who I am and I'm, I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm perfect how I am and I don't need something to tell me that. Yeah. Well, and that, that level of self-actualization is something that people who are in the throes of struggle are often not in a mindset to be able to even think about that to be able to think beyond like how am I just going to survive today mm -hmm. when you really get desperate and you're just thinking how do I survive today how do I get to the point where I can go to bed and then I don't know maybe hopefully wake up in the morning I mean people get to that level yeah. but you know some of the barriers that we put in front of people that keep them from stepping into some of those more self-actualized spaces. Maybe somebody just needs to get medicine to get even so they can be in their right mind and even have permission to dream mm -hmm. about a life of stability about uh, like we like we refer to in the book we refer to it as a promised land life that's yeah. worth staying sober for that's worth living and that's worth fighting for you can't even visualize a life like that when you're still in the cycle and the throes of addiction mm -hmm. or in the cycle and the throes of even struggles with your mental health so if we can find ways for people to step forward and ask for help and I know what's really interesting especially in this time frame is the second world is showing up and answering this call mm -hmm. you you can watch any stream anything on Hulu and there will be a commercial I guarantee you every show you're gonna watch is gonna have a commercial about like here is a helpline call if you're having suicidal thoughts if you're yeah. struggling with anxiety we know this pandemic's been hard on everybody call and get help right now which is great I want I want all kinds of mm -hmm. help to be out there where's the church right where is the church right now in this opportune time to step up and meet people in the middle of their grief let them know how loved they already are how forgiven they already are and that grace is available to them today yeah. we're missing it we're missing on out on a huge opportunity and rather than show up with what people expect from the church which is another legalistic group of steps that I have to follow in order to be loved and accepted and to belong or a, a certain lifestyle that I have to keep perfectly like you flip a switch and I I was changed forever <laughs> if you can't maintain that kind of mindset within our communities going forward 
the church will become more and more obsolete as culture goes forward. Now, the interesting thing when you look at the life of Jesus, he never did what the Pharisees at the temple were doing. He never, he didn't come into the world and enter into ministry in his thirties and say, okay, where do I need to go to seminary? And what prominent position do I need to seek out in what temple so that I can have the greatest impact or what program of the day do I need to like lay down besides the Beatitudes? That was a pretty good one. (laughs) But, But no, he, he went into the world he went into it. He he was not of the world, but he was definitely in it. Mm-hmm. He went down. He he spent time one on one with people. He had these transformative encounters yeah. that left them changed. We have that same opportunity. We have this like we have the spirit of the living God in us. We can go have conversations with these people, have transformative conversations that can help change the trajectory of their lives. This is our opportunity, church, and we're just not doing it. We're yeah. just not. And it's it's. You know, it's so funny. I, this is what I was thinking about this morning in my devotional time. Um, all things work together for for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Mm-hmm. That's so quoted by everybody, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, even me sometimes. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting, and that is in Romans 8, earlier in Romans 8, it says, join with him in his suffering to know him, Right? That's never quoted. How come? Ch- come on, church. Let's quote That's that a hard one. Sell. That's like, hello. It's in the same chapter as the good things. It's like, we we're going to suffer. Yeah. It's in. I also realize, and I want. So Britt just flew in. She's going to stay a couple days with me. We're going to shoot some videos, but um, she hasn't been to my house yet. So the when I was in my devotion, I'll show you this when we get to my house. But I think I have a problem because. I, I look at all the books that are currently in my prayer room where I study, and like suffering is in like every title. Oh I'm like, gosh. I think I, it's like, it's suffering, suffering, suffering. Four out of like six books are titled Suffering is somewhere in the title. And so I, I think I'm the opposite of it. But the truth is, um, because it's, I, I want to know how to walk a journey where suffering is, is part of it. Yeah. Because yeah. the reality is, the human experience dictates you will suffer. So why is it so hard to talk about suffering? Well, because it doesn't fit your church bulletin profile. It doesn't fit the profile of like, you know, hey, you know, uh, let's talk about Malachi and how we should all tie 10%. And in the middle of your, you know, suffering, you know, it's, it's just, they don't yeah. go together, Yeah. but every church preaches Malachi on, and, and tithing, you know, at least twice a year. And so, well, not every church, there's some good ones out yeah. there. They don't, but it, it, the truth is, I love how Bill talks about just on a side note, I got ADD. Bill talks about Malachi and he's like, that's not even what it means. Okay. It's <laughs> not know. even about tithing people <laughs> besides the point, read Bill Vanderbush and, and my, my star here, Brit Eaton, you know, reckless grace. They, I think it's covered in the book, but <laughs> Anyways, um, the truth is suffering just, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about the suffering yet. It's in James, it's in Romans, it's in so many of the books that we quote other scriptures, but not, not the suffering part, yeah. not the suffering. It's too hard. Well, I think it's interesting in our communities and even then you and I, you and I can be digging so deep into a topic like suffering or like a, like just really exploring the problem of pain because, you know, as people who have struggled with addictions and compulsive behaviors, I'm talking the two of us who are speaking right now, like we don't like pain. It's why we turn to these vices at the very beginning. Like the whole purpose of my young life was to 
chase after everything sparkly and happy and avoid every bit of pain if possible avoid sure. every confrontation avoid every hard decision i didn't want to deal with it um and then i would occasionally do really really difficult things like just to prove that i was tough like i would join the military i would do you know just it wasn't that i couldn't endure pain <laughs> um but that problem of pain is why yeah. we turn to our vices in the first place. But what if we learned how to not avoid our pain, but actually lean into it and let that that painful fire refine us and stretch us and grow us? Yeah. The, the concept of spiritual resilience, you don't really develop resilience unless you go through something difficult, unless there's resistance against you, unless there is some sort of warfare that you are fighting, whether it's in the natural or in the supernatural, you will not grow right. in your faith. You will not grow in maturity. And so <laughs> when we're young and when we're immature, we do everything we can to try to avoid that pain. And for some, if that's perpetuated for too long, either in a vice or in an addiction or in a, some sort of compulsive behavior, that that important development can be arrested late, late into life where you have people yeah. in their 70s who are still struggling with the same stuff they were struggling with when they were 25. It just looks different now. Mm -hmm. But what the reality is, if we can not only acknowledge the problem of pain, that we're all carrying it, but then look at suffering as the potential for an invitation into a journey with the father that could lead you straight into your calling so many people who step into ministry later in life are stepping into something because of pain in their earlier life because of trauma that was caused yeah. or something that they did or some sort of horrible thing that they wish that they could reverse but bottom line they don't want other people to have to go through what they went through and so part of our jobs as leaders is to step in and love people who are right in the middle of the throes of whatever that struggle is but the other piece is what can we do to be shifting generations what can we yeah. how can we break off generational curses so that our kids kids won't have to deal with problems like addiction and mental health problems like we do now what right. if we can destigmatize let's keep using that word i'm yeah, just gonna keep I'm, using I'm, it definitely. just like uncovery is not really a word either but we're gonna keep using that one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we can destigmatize it enough in our generation we may not reap the benefits of that you and i george but our kids will and mm -hmm. our kids kids will so that is that is a battle i'm willing to fight and i believe if we can shift the way people think about recovery if they can understand that everybody's in need of some sort of salvation and that the ultimate answer comes with jesus you will see revival in the church like you have sure. never seen it before there's never been a meeting like it there has never been redemption and restoration like this so i think it's coming i don't know if we'll be alive to see it but i'm still excited <laughs> I, i'm I forgot we're on video. I'm sitting here shaking my head like they can't see You're me. Like, but, no. oh, wait, actually, yeah. <laughs> Most people probably just listen to the podcast, but either way, we are on video. So there I am shaking my head. So I might as well back that up. No, we probably, I don't know if we will see that because, and I'm, I actually have a reason that's not anti-church or whatever as a reason. And that is this. Okay. So the Uncovery, the book is coming out and I already know that I'm going to get calls and emails that are like, you know, I love the book, but somehow people miss the point and they're like, they'll ask me about their son who's a drug addict and how do they get him sober today? <laughs> and it, and it's yeah. like now the counselor that I, in me that, you know, for years, from years of being a counselor and the person who's ran the Timothy initiative and, and worked with enough people, mm -hmm. I can give some advice to that situation. Mm -hmm. 
But the reality is that's not what the book is about. Yeah. The book is about the entire scope of recovery, how it's for everyone, and how the problems that we've been trying to address as a society actually come from different reasons than we've thought. And so most of what we've tried to do in recovery has been behavior modification Mm -hmm. and behavior modification only works so well. It only works for so long, which is why you see so many people, 1.5 out of every 10 people make it sober one year. Mm -hmm. That's off of drugs and alcohol. So Mm -hmm. that's literally why we see these problems because you're asking somebody who's damaged their brains and, 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 you know, their spirits to all of a sudden do better behavior Okay, it even sounds ludicrous. Okay, this person has been high for like decades. You just need to change your behavior for the next whatever. And some of them make it and some don't. That's the, the point is the behavior modification just dresses up and makes, you know, people that are kind of jacked up look a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And maybe they don't, you know, currently shoot up heroin anymore, but they're still the same screwed up person. Mm-hmm. The reality is the uncovery is trying to part of what the book tries to address is the fact that the problems we have as a society start early in life. And I think that this is another reason why people don't want to talk about it is because, you know, how many parents have come to me and said, I've done everything for my kid. I don't know why they're still getting high and I don't want to do this because they're already broken enough. But the reality is, well, what did you do their first five years of life? Because that matters a lot. And if your answer is, I worked super hard to put food on the table, that sounds like a wonderful thing. And most people try to do that, but that can actually send the wrong message to an infant. So then he ends up searching for love and affection in ways that he can receive it. And when he can't get it from you, because you're trying to be a good parent Mm -hmm. and doing your best to pay the bills, he he finds a different way. So he starts acting out at a young age. And when he starts acting out at a young age, well, then you come against him. And I mean, the cycle just goes. So it's almost like the world, there's a, there's a problem. And as a society, we need to address the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, we try to just paint this picture of, there's a scope of things that are wrong. Yeah. But the person who's getting high today and, and you want to help that person, the book may not actually do much for you if that's what you're searching for. Yeah. Other than maybe help you see the way that the reasons that you think they've been getting high are probably wrong mm-hmm. and it's probably something else. Mm-hmm. And so when we can begin to, to look at, OK, I just thought they made bad choices oh, it's actually something else. Um, I can't actually ask them to just change their behavior. I have to go back to their trauma to try to help them heal from that. And then the behavior just naturally changes. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's just, it's a different, it's just totally different. Yeah. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that you, you had us dig deep into with the book um, were studies with epigenetics, um, how we, you know, we, we did our research and we've been able to bring forth evidence that shows that there really is no addiction gene. Right. People assume that there's something in your genes and your genetics that makes you more prone to being an addict. And new studies have shown that that's absolutely not true. But what we are seeing clearly is that cultural and generational um pieces are what keep addiction going from generation to Mm -hmm. generation if you have a family where the cultural values are you know work until your knuckles bleed and put food on the table and this is who we are if that becomes all of who you are that's what you will do that's what your children will Mm -hmm. do and that's what your children will 
children's 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 tongue tied but culturally Mm -hmm. you can carry addiction forward by perpetuating out of balance family values and out of balance family priorities but within these pieces if we can begin to understand for some reason someone comes along that's able to just break off the chains when we're talking about breaking these generational curses we're not necessarily saying oh they they supernaturally got the genes broke off them (laughs) that's not not what we mean Mm -hmm. we're literally changing family trees Mm -hmm. by looking at addiction differently understanding the traumatic elements in childhood that happen that create those pieces and stopping the systemic pieces that are keeping that going from generation to generation this is our opportunity this is Mm -hmm. where we're going to see the after effects in the generations after us and look down on them from heaven and go wow look look right. at that look at them they got it finally the, the, the reality is you know I, and I understand it it's like you know there's a problem how do we solve that problem is a society especially American society is built upon that mm-hmm. and and I get that and it, and it works in a lot of ways but it doesn't work in this way that's why the war on drugs did not work does yeah. not work and was a complete mistake um, it made matters worse I mean things that it's like we see a problem. Oh, the borders need to change because pills are coming in, drugs are coming in. That that's not gonna change. Why do we think uh, it's it's interesting? Like people don't understand the history of actually drug cycles, mm-hmm. and that is like okay, so you know, methamphetamine gets introduced when it gets introduced by Adolf Hitler in early, you know, the whole Nazi Germany thing where they he developed methamphetamine so his pilots could stay up nonstop and and do this you know, shoot people. And so that comes into the world. And so once he, which kind of makes sense when you Mm -hmm. think about it, methamphetamine came from Hitler, but that's besides the point. (laughs) So, you know, it's just like, there's this cycle. It's like, it comes in, but then heroin comes in in the fifties and then cocaine comes in. Well, cocaine came in in the seventies, but in the sixties, hallucinogenics. And it's, there's always something, right? So let's say we shut the borders and we shut down big pharma. People will start sniffing glue. They will. Because there's countries that sniff glue. Yeah. That's a reality. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm not just making this up. It's like you think you get rid of the bad drugs and this problem will go away. It's not going to go away because people are going to continue to want to escape from the life that they're living because it's too hard. Yeah. There's Look it up if you don't know this. Google countries where they're addicted to sniffing glue. Not being, I'm not trying to be funny or facetious. It's a real thing. And so... All of the drugs, all of the problems that come from all of the different drugs, we've spent billions and billions of dollars trying to stop the drugs. But the problem isn't in the drugs. It's in society itself. It is in the life that we lead. It's the way that we raise our children. It's the life that how our our parents bought, brought us up. It's, it's all of that. And so it's like understanding, you know, yeah, there's a problem, but if you want like a one-to-one causation on how to stop that problem, you're not going to get it. Yeah. It's actually it's actually bigger than that. Yeah. The good news is at least we can finally know, mm-hmm. and so we can start addressing it in the early years. So it's like, okay, you know, you have a, a, a baby, so it's like learn like the ACEs test. Mm-hmm. Learn that so you know what not to do to your child. Mm-hmm. Do what you need to do in order to raise your child in a way that you don't, you know, bring them up where they're going to need some type of outside thing to make them feel whole. And it's often it's not the things that we really we really think. And it's interesting you bring up the, you know, the genetic thing and people are like, no, there's absolutely an addiction gene. It's like, no, there's not. And (laughs) 
So it's like, well, yeah, well, then how come, you know, the, you know, this guy had his father was an alcoholic and then he became an alcoholic and his, his other grandchildren are becoming alcoholics. It's like, that's gotta be genetic. Or they were raised in a household with an alcoholic who exuded behavior of an alcoholic, which caused them to then become an alcoholic. It's cultural. Well, no, I didn't, you know, I've had guys tell me it must be genetic because they're like, I saw how my father was. And so I, I vowed to not be that. And then I became that. It's like how you vow doesn't matter, okay? Yeah. It, it doesn't make a difference on what's happening inside of you. Yeah. It's genetics are, are, it's really a fascinating study, I mean, at least to me, but genes are turned on or off. Yeah. So all genes, like they exist, but the genetic code needs to be turned on or off, and it takes an outside stimulus and protein in order to turn that gene on or off. Yeah. And so when we have genes that do become addiction genes per se down the road the behavior externally still had to turn it on and and so it's like if we know that and we can begin to grasp that then we can begin to say okay well what is that behavior that turns that gene on yeah and so it's a whole learning process it creates in anyone that's trying to love and lead people through addiction or problems with their mental health or anything like that it creates a sense of authentic compassion for people that you might not have had before. If you just assume somebody is just, oh, well, they're just an addict or, oh, well, they've just, they're hope, they're a hopeless case. They've relapsed so many times. They're such a drain. If that's really your mentality with someone, you won't be moved with compassion to help them. You won't want to get to know them. You won't want to get to know their story. But if you understand this person is not naturally predisposed to be a junkie. Mm-hmm. Like that's not a thing. Nobody chooses this. Even right. if they did choose to use that one first time nobody chooses to step into bondage it happens so slowly or so unexpectedly that people literally get deep in and they can't get out so what if we could understand the origins of addiction and mental health problems differently if we understand the origin differently we can look at it and say this person is no different from me no different from anyone else they're just in need of a different level of love a different level and type of healing and Mm -hmm. maybe that healing they need is actually very similar to the healing that I need because they might be addicted to this but i'm addicted to this over here so the right. neurological premise is the same exactly. so if we understand we all carry a propensity toward this if we are not filled to overflowing at a young age if we are not in a place where ident- our identities are solid and we are moving forward in a way where we know how loved we are we will seek external sure. support to try to fill that gosh this is so cliche that god-shaped hole in all of us it's so cliche but it's so true sure and it will take time to fill that back up with god's love the only way that people can really do that is if god's people will be loving and full of grace toward them so i I don't know there i've gotten a lot of criticism since i've started some of these conversations and started working with heretics like you george which makes it really fun (laughs) but in the midst of all of it i would rather stand before God one day and say, you know what? I may have like extended a little more grace than the average person. Maybe I even went too far. Sometimes I would rather be on that end than hold people to unrealistic standards. They can never achieve. I'm going to show up with love every time. We, I think people, I mean, and I understand this. It's like, everybody wants an answer. That's either, either, you know, it's, it's just cut and dry. Right. Um, I, (laughs) it's funny because um, I can say a lot of things that may make me seem smart and I can put out a book and Brit makes me seem smart. And 
And I have a, I have a very successful organization that people could say, wow, look at that and all that type of stuff. But my life is chaos, man. It seriously is chaos 24-7. So I am no different than anybody else. I have the person I've tried to help that continues to relapse and relapse. I have the person I've showed compassion to. I have the person I've cut off. I've, I mean, it's no different for me. So it's not like there's a golden ticket and it's like call George and he'll tell you what to do and it'll all be fine. Yeah. Take come spend a couple days with me. You'll see, like, man, this dude is nuts. Yeah. I'm gonna go back to thinking a different way. But point is, it's like, okay, so people say the Bible is what is this? They say God's plan, God's book for God's God, handbook. Handbook. There we go. <laughs> That's you. one of my favorite weird things yeah, to say. Yeah. Thing. God's handbook. What? Okay, let me figure out how to say this in a way that isn't offensive. What if that's true and not true? What if the reason you think that's true is wrong, but yet it's true? So we look at it as this is God's handbook, and, and you follow the handbook, and it's everything's going to, your life's going to be good. You're going to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. What if it's God's handbook because people are jacked up, and, and this is how you're supposed to walk with them? Yeah. Okay, what if it is really God's handbook? You're mm -hmm. right, but it's not, so you can be perfect and have a great life. Yeah. It's God's handbook so that you know how to better walk with people through their own jacked upness. Yeah. That's, that's the reality. It's like, you know, oh, it's the handbook. You know, if you're thinking of divorcing your wife, it's in the handbook. You can't do that. Yeah. All that type of stuff. And it's like, you're thinking of it from, we got to get away from being totally narcissistic and thinking everything is about us. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, Jesus is pretty clear. It's like if he lays down his life for his friends. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was absolutely clear, but we don't want to talk about the actual teachings of Jesus. We want to talk about something else. But Jesus paints this picture of like, lay down your life, suffer for me. You will be persecuted. All that. That's the words of Jesus. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it is God's handbook, but it's so that you see where he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, it's where, you know, it's him saying, you know, look at the lilies of the field or the birds, right? It's, it's all the, those sayings that we don't actually use yeah. that, that are actually the handbook of God. It's so, let me just tell you, it's like, yeah, you, you walk around enough people that are, are jacked up and you realize your own jacked upness and you realize that no matter what you do, they stay jacked up. You don't cut them off. You, 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 yeah, you look to scripture and you talk to the father and you figure out new ways to walk with them, but you don't give up on people mm -hmm. ever. And you know, you don't ever give up on people. You change your approach, of course, yeah. but you don't give up and you, and you be there for people and you lay down your life for people and, and you just trust that the Lord has you. And sometimes most of the time, it doesn't always work out the way you think it will yeah. or you hoped it would. And so, I don't know, man. I think sometimes people just have this mental picture that you do the right thing and, and, the, and the person strung out on heroin their entire life is going to be good. No, they may not be good. Or the person with bipolar or schizoaffecta is going to, you know, take their medication and be fine. Well, they may not be fine. Mm -hmm. I, got, I was telling a friend the other day about the book. I'm like, more people die in the book than stay alive. So there's a certain reality in that, that there's a lot of stories, but there's a, a lot of people don't actually live. Yeah. So it, it tells you this, you know, that the reality is we're in a fallen world. We're in a, in a broken, hurt world. And 
we we've been taught this sold this bill of goods that do the right thing and everything will be great and yeah. it's actually not like that well one of the things that made me so excited to step into this project with you is that you know what one of the things that got me so burnt out with um volunteering and leading through celebrate recovery is just that like the statistics you shared earlier like one and a half people out of 10 make it a year without relapsing and when you're looking at 80 or 85 percent of your people failing out of the 12 steps and having to go back to step one and walk through the whole thing again and shame this time again and each time they go through at a deeper level of shame cr certainly didn't intend that but that's the way people feel when they're walking in like lockstep legalism which is ironically where a lot of these programs are housed on like wednesday nights so (laughs) back up but but even within all of that there's something new that god is doing in the recovery space it has a lot to do with grace but it also has to do with the the clarity that God is doing a new thing in this space. When I see organizations like the Timothy Initiative and what you're doing with the Sober Truth Project and you look at your statistics and they are flipped on their head from our traditional recovery programs from not just 12-step programming but also, you know, rehabs things like that. You you don't have the same metrics that you follow. You don't have, you know, the exact same rules that are in place from day one. You're not, it's not lawlessness here, but you are seeing results from this community aspect and approach to recovery that you've got 80% of people staying sober for a year. Like it's amazing. And I'm saying how, how in the world did you flip that statistic on its head and we dug deep and we figured it out and it looks a whole lot less like a program and it looks a whole lot more like showing up and loving people like Jesus did. It looks a whole lot less like the law and even most of the aspects of the Old Testament and it looks a lot more like the new covenant promises that come in and through the person of Jesus and the way that he acted toward people. Like, can we actually just have Jesus-centered recovery and let go of a lot of the religious legalism that's been attached to it because none of us, no matter how hard we strive, are ever going to be perfect. Never. And right. so <laughs> if, if we can know that going I'll in, that. yeah, if so. we can know that going in and even see our failures as opportunities for growth, as opportunities for corporate repentance, opportunities for corporate revival, mm-hmm. like that's what I believe that you guys have started here. And that's why it's such a privilege to get to partner with you and help you find words for it. <laughs> it's so funny because there was a few times where our topics got pretty heavy and, and Britt's like, I want you to know I am with you. I'm going to ride or die with you. We, I'm, I'm not going to bail on you no matter what <laughs> comes your way. I'm just thinking, you have no idea the things I say when I'm in public. You might want to, <laughs> you might want to like put a footnote. Like I am with him on the book, whatever he says in a public space. No, dude. I totally am. I'm not. <laughs> I'm <anyway>. with you. hundred <laughs> percent. But no. So. I think one of the things that um, we cover in the book that I, I, I brought up is um, I think what we've learned and um, continue to learn is, okay, if you think about people that are struggling with addiction, if you ask the guy who's, you know, the hardcore person, why? Why do you get high? And it's universal. I want to, I don't feel comfortable in my own skin, right? And, and that's a really, really horrible place to be where you don't literally feel comfortable in your own skin. And I don't think even most of the people hearing this, if you've never been on, you know, hard drugs, you can even understand what I'm saying. But most people that struggle with addiction, we just want to feel like we belong in our body 
for one, um, comfortable in our skin, um, not just comfortable in public, but literally comfortable in my skin because I feel like my skin's crawling and feeling like, you know, I, I don't, I don't fit anywhere. And so if we, we work that problem backwards, okay, so why does that happen, right? And, and what could change that? And, and that's a place where a person feels like they belong. Mm-hmm. It's a place where people feel like in their own skin, in that moment, they still fit. They still belong. They still, you know, have hope and they still have, um, they still have purpose, right? And I think if society could understand that the way that they approach things makes people feel like they need to be on more drugs because they can't do it the way that their parents want. They can't do it the way that their wives or husbands want. They're just, there's something wrong in them. Mm -hmm. And they need to, you know, they need to feel at home in their own body to be around people. And that shouldn't be that way. And so it's about, you know, helping society understand that the way that we approach things makes us feel like we don't belong. So in the initiative, it's we've worked that problem backwards and tried to fill the void of all the things that, you know, those of us that struggle, um, why we struggle. And it's worked. It's like putting people in an environment where they have, you know, hope and, and a purpose and um, just hope overall. Mm-hmm. And so that is what makes a guy say, I can, I can fight another day. And it's an interesting thing. <laughs> What's so mind-blowing about it is most of the guys, they don't ever really struggle with wanting to get high. I don't understand it, but it's not like we have to have house meetings because a guy's thinking of going out. Yeah. I mean, guys go out on occasion, but it's not – in most rehabs, if you go to a rehab, mm-hmm. a guy like, you know – 28 days in is going to be like, man, I got to go get high. Please, you know, they'll have a meeting and they'll all like, this is why you shouldn't go get high and don't forget your kids. Right, Cole? Am I wrong about this? And, uh, but we don't have that problem. This is just dawning on me right now, but we never have that. But you know why, right? It's because you let people know from day one that they belong before they ever behave. The belonging Mm -hmm. is the most important thing. It really is. And yeah. when people feel like they belong, they don't, they, the behavior is something that'll fall into line naturally. And if we yeah. can flip that on its head, even in some of our long standing successful programming, like this is an opportunity for recovery, period. Like, like secular, sacred, like all of it. Mm-hmm. If we can create, create community, create opportunities for belonging on day one, yeah. that's what keeps people coming back. It's all about love. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, hard to understand because, you know, addiction is, especially addiction can seem like such a massive topic that they're, it's just complicated and complex. And when you really, really break it down to Jesus, um, it's not love, you know, love God with all your heart, mind and soul and and love your neighbors yourself is really just spells it out, you know? Um, and, and I think we make it really complicated and then, and you know, when you think of mental health issues and I think the principle just applies, it's just people want to, people want to belong. They want to fit. 
Um, most people that struggle with addiction and mental health issues weren't the cool kids, you know, a lot of times, or they weren't the successful business person, or, and, and a lot of that isn't even because they weren't capable. It's because they were struggling with something that the world didn't see. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, who knows, you know, my, the men that I live and do life with are some of the smartest, most brilliant people I've ever been around. I would take them over 90% of the successful business people I know any day of the week. <laughs> so it's, it's the reality is like, you know, most of the people we've written off is we've written them off before we gave them a chance. Yeah, so it's like, how do you continue to just re write people off without giving them a chance? And so there's so much untapped potential and um, in the way, you know, on the flip side, if we change the way we approach recovery for mental health and, and addiction, and if we just change that, there's so much, you know, untapped potential for society, even for, you know, the people that are just worried about the drain on the economy. It's yeah. like, you know, I get it. But if you, if you don't, you know, change the way you're doing things, the drain on the economy is going to continue. Where if we change what we're doing, then people could be productive members of society. So there is, there is a difference. It's just, we're so into the penal system of punishment mm -hmm. and like, you know, making things hard and make people jump through hoops and all that, that, you know, we just can't, we're our, we can't trust God with justice. We have to take it upon ourselves to get justice. Yeah. So it's like, for us in the organization, we've started this new thing where well, I've started it. I'm trying to infect everybody else with it, where it's like um, really preaching health over growth, where mm -hmm. I don't care about, you know, growing the ministry. I care about making healthy men that can take restored, reconciled relationships back to their families so that they could become men of honor and men of their word and become fathers to their children and husband to their now girlfriend and baby mamas and do things in a way that just becomes a shining example to their families and others that makes people see like, okay, there, there is this difference, right? So that's like a healthy version of what we could do, which is different than what society would say, where society would be like, well, how many more houses can you add? And how many, you know, that type of thing, where it's like, that's a typical business model of recovery, and I refuse to go there, and it just doesn't work, and it's not going to work for me. So, you know, maybe one more house, but I'm not going to, I'm not trying to add a bunch of things, because what we do works, and it works because we are who we are, and we do what we do, yeah. not because we're trying to be duplicated or, you know, whatever, like the typical business model goes, but we can become healthier and we can become um, a better version of even what we're doing by bringing things back to community. So it yeah. just really shifts the community focus. Yeah. So people can all like begin to understand that. So mm -hmm. sort of like my own little utopia <laughs> where in my, um, my whatever it is my cult that i live with on uh, <laughs> 22nd avenue it's, it's a, the most delightful little commune i've ever seen it's a commune there yeah, we go, there we go. no yeah. but one of, one of the most powerful things you taught me in this whole process was the concept of like compassion fatigue 
and that even if you have a desire to want to grow, even if if in the best of your intentions, you just want to help more people, Mm -hmm. that if you start to step outside of what God has actually called you to do, you cease to be productive. And the drain on your heart and the drain on the spirit that you carry is just too strong. But I think it's important, George, for this book to come out, for this message to come out now so that people can hear about the unique and like radically divergent way that you and Julie have been called to live in this community in inner city Tampa with these men who are your friends, your neighbors, your brothers. You do life 100 percent together like the original church did. Now, people who pick up and read this book might not be called to that divergent level of ministry. That's pretty intense. That's like missionary style living. Some of them might be, and maybe this you will be, be the call. So be careful. If you pick up this book, folks, you might just you might just hear your own call. But even if you're not called to that level of complete all-inness, the big thing that George and I want you to do is to pick up this book and ask the Lord, like, is there anything else, anything more that you would have me do? Yeah. Anything else, anything different you would have me try? And would you be open to doing it? Even yeah. if it just means invite somebody to coffee that you would never invite to coffee. Or send a text message to check up, check in on someone if you get a Holy Spirit nudge to do so. Are you willing to step out and make yourself feel a tiny bit uncomfortable if it might mean really, really great kingdom breakthrough and it might change the course of someone's recovery? Yeah. Are you willing? Uncomfortable conversations are good to have. Um, and I, they're probably the ones that are needed to have. So, mm-hmm. so anyways, we... Britt and I have a whole day of filming tomorrow. Yay. Yay. I <laughs> have no idea what I'm going to say. So <laughs> the best part was like, you know, usually in our writing sessions, I would just show up and just start talking and Britt would ask questions. It was, you know, it's just kind of like three hours go by. It's like, okay, I'll, we got good. She types real fast. So <laughs> no worries. You this know, is what a ghostwriter does. <laughs> you're not a ghostwriter. You are my co-author. Oh, thank there you. There is a difference. It is my honor to be your co-author. Thank yes. you so much for inviting me into all of this. Yeah. Well, do you remember like when you're like, well, there's different ways we can do this. I can be a ghostwriter and yada, yada. I'm like that. I would feel like I was lying. <laughs> a lot of people are and really happy like, to let me write in for them. <laughs> a lot of people do this. I'm yeah. like, yeah, but I just would feel weird being like, yes, I wrote every word of this. <laughs> Because my friends would be like, no, you didn't. We know you. You're like all over the place, dude. There's no way you wrote that. And that one sentence, you don't even talk like that. Anyways. We do good work together. I'm like, just be my co-author. I don't have to feel like I lied. Whatever. You know, I'm good with that. So anyways. So, yes. Any last thoughts? Oh, man. It's just an honor and a privilege to be here. You have challenged me and my husband, Mike, so much. Um, Just stepping into what's next we both went through a season of compassion fatigue from recovery activities and things like this and this message has just given me hope for the future not just for us and for you know our sobriety and our and our walk with the lord into this promised land life but especially for my daughter and for her future kids and for the generations that are coming it's really an honor to get to be at the start of something new that God's doing with you guys. So thank That's you awesome. for having me here. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So anyways, I hope everybody's enjoyed this and they are as excited as we are about the book. Yes. About the uncovery. It's coming out this spring. Get sh- We'll be sending you guys links for pre-ordering things yes. like that. So yes. stand by. <laughs> so we, we, and ways to send money. <laughs> yes. 
send money. So, <laughs> Mike, so as always, I got Cole over here. Cole's on the on the keyboards, anyways, laughing at me. So he'll edit out all the stupid things I say, so you won't ever hear them. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Bye, guys.